seemed to get all these assignments. I was supposed to go through the entire Old Testament. I went through the entire New Testament, and now I have to go through the entire history of the church in 30 minutes. So this is a very rough outline just meant to maybe remind you of topics that we talked about, and then you can go explore them to your heart's desire. One thing I did want to pick up on, uh, some, some people asked me during, uh, first I got, you know, got to cite my sources, Acts 29. Um, it's a part of Father John Ricardo's preaching. He's, he preaches on uh, Spirit Catholic Radio a lot. He's an inspiration to me. I listened to him before I ever became a priest and really loved uh, just the way he presented the gospel. And he's got this resource, The Rescue Project. It has books. It has I think, even videos and podcasts and all sorts of things that uh, can help, uh, again, understand the Rescue Project. It's kind of Jesus's mission, uh, rescue, salvation. So wanted to throw that resource out there. And then just say one more word on uh, I just kind of said four marks of the church in passing, but maybe we want to know what those are. You know, we say every Sunday in the Nicene Creed, one holy, I believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. What are these marks of the church? Well, they came about, if you look there in Saints history, the patristic church, sort of in the 300s. After the time of persecution, Christianity was very much in the shadows. It was allowed to come into the lights. And when she came into the lights, the church fathers, the patristic people, they came together and they formed that creed. What do we all believe? What is, we can put it in a seed form, in a kernel of things. What do we all believe? They came up with that creed. And it all comes from scripture. It all comes from Jesus. It comes from his church. But they included these four marks. A mark is, you know, I got a mark on my forehead that turns red when I get nervous. Is it red? I don't know. Maybe not. Good. Not nervous. I'm fine. But uh, it's an identifying characteristic. And so what the early church was saying is, if your church is not one holy Catholic and apostolic, they're probably not the same church that Jesus founded. They're not in communion with us. Probably heretical. So what do those four marks mean? How do they narrow down to the one true church? Well, it's one, one body. Uh, so it's not many, it's not divided. You know, it might be different, distinct in different parts as there's different branches to the one tree, but it's united. It's one, but it's also holy. So you might ask, well, which one is it? Among all these different ones out there in the world, it's the holy one. Holy means to be set apart. So God set the church apart from all other parts of creation to be that bridge, to be that sacrament of salvation, that way of gaining union with him. So it has a special mission. It has communion. Again, special mission, holy, it's set apart. So it's the holy one. Well, then you might ask, well, this one is one and holy. This one is one and holy. This one is over there is one and holy. Well, it's also Catholic which means, again, universal. It means spanning to all time, all space, to all peoples, uh, and also Catholic in that has the fullness of the teaching of the truth. You know, there are churches that are, they, they might be one in themselves. They might contain a certain character of holiness they share in Jesus' mission of trying to baptize and preach, uh, but they, they don't have maybe the fullness. 
the full spectrum of the sacraments, the full vision of the Christian life. Uh, those churches have some good in them, and the church appreciates that and calls them brethren as well, but maybe doesn't have that full Catholic vision, having the fullness. And finally, it's apostolic. Yes, it's everywhere, but it has to all be rooted again in that one seed, that one kernel in the apostles. And who is the one apostle above all apostles? Uh, you're going to say Peter. Yes and no. The apostle above all apostles is actually Jesus. He is the one sent from the Father. The word apostle means sent. So Jesus is the one who is sent from God. And then as, I, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. So again, there's this constant chain of those that are sensed, sort of, sort of like a tree, where there's the one line and then each branching off, but it's all belonging to that one, from that one seed. So again, it's kind of Cardinal Newman's theory of the development of doctrine, but all in this one, these four little words. This is the church. If your church isn't these four things, you need to search for the church that is, because that's the church Jesus founded that the, the earliest Christians acknowledged this is the church Jesus founded. One that is one holy Catholic and apostolic. So, church history. I put that first point there just to appreciate that the church uh, does, in a sense, exist before Jesus, in that God in the Old Testament, in calling his people and the people Israel, is, is already preparing for what the church is about to be. And if the church is the body of Christ, you know, coming forth from Mary, in a sense, you know, the church is already there as well in that unbroken line of Israel, generation to generation to generation, that ends in Mary and ends in Jesus. You know, so the body of Christ is in a hidden way already present through that single line going back all the way. That's why the gospel writers will have genealogies linking Jesus, Mary, David, Abraham, Adam, God that unbroken line all the way through. And we can be a part of that unbroken line is the incredible thing. That's their story can be our story. So that's just why I included the church before Christ. Uh, but the church of Christ, again, so important to recognize that Jesus meant to leave a, a church. Uh, there are scholars that have to do a doctorate. And so they do something, you know, that's halfway crazy because most doctorates are. And they come up with things like, oh, Jesus didn't really mean to leave a church. And it's like, okay, no, we, we, we just got to put that out there. There's too much evidence in the scriptures itself in what happens. Jesus, on this rock, I will build my church. The rock of Peter, he said, the spirit will guide you. Again, you cannot receive everything now, but when the spirit comes that I will send you, he will guide you into all truth. So again, came to establish a body, a presence, that would be lasting throughout all history. He gave them a mission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. But that great commissioning, he established a process, sent people. As I have been sent by the Father, so I send you, and you will send others, and they will send others. We, but we are Christians here today because of that line of tradition. And then, so key moment, there'll be a key moment in every age. Uh, key moment is Pentecost. A lot of times referred to as the birth of the church. 
Holy Spirit descending on the apostles, going out to all nations from there. So now we'll enter into history between zero, well, 30, 30 AD, roughly 30 AD when Jesus died on the cross, rose again, and 2000 AD, where we're in right now. Funny, right? We, we actually divide our time by Jesus, um, something that wasn't done in the ancient world, right? They, they didn't have 20 AD. I think the AD BC thing didn't even start until like 700s because, of course, Rome didn't really care for Jesus much at the time, like before, so they're not going to count according to Jesus. They counted uh, in a couple ways, but one of the ways was according to the founding of the city of Rome. So the church did the same thing. When did the city of God start? It started in 0 AD. When? When Jesus was conceived. When the body of Christ started existing on this earth, the church exists, the body of Christ exists, the city of God has been founded. So we count according to the establishment of the city of God. The year of our Lord, AD, Anno Domini. So we step first into the, the church of the apostles and what that looks like. And I, I said the key moment was really the martyrdom in Rome. Martyrdom of who? Of Peter and Paul, the, the two saints, the two great apostles of, of the early church. And why Rome, again, was so important. I mentioned it was the ends of the earth. It was where all roads led to. And all, all roads led from. It sort of expressed the height that humanity can get to on their own. Sort of a tower of Babel that also falls. But is then, if grace builds on nature, that's another principle to remember. Grace always builds on nature. God created nature. It's fallen. But with his grace, he, he redeems it, raises it back up, builds off of it. So that's the same sort of logic of why Rome? Why, why not Jerusalem? Well, you look at Jerusalem today, it's probably a good thing the church is not centered in Jerusalem. That would just cause all sorts of other conflicts that maybe God in his providence wanted to avoid. So that was, that was a key moment for the Christians with, with Peter and Paul. You go to Rome today, uh, I've been there. The tombs of, of Peter and Paul are so important. Um, in fact, they, they ended up building these huge basilicas over them. They sort of buried their tombs. And again, modern research and modern doc, doctorates were all saying, oh, there's really no tomb there. Peter and Paul, they never came to Rome. And then just in the last like 50 years, they dug out underneath these places. And sure enough, they were right where the early church and the early Christians said they were. So again, Maybe there's something to these traditions. Maybe they're not. Yeah, again, maybe the church is real. Doctorates don't usually take that into consideration. It's fine. Uh, church in persecution. So again, Jesus said, if they have rejected me, they will also reject you. So of course, the kingdom of God doesn't come to the world without much persecution. And the church was persecuted up until the point of Emperor Constantine. He had this conversion when... As he explains it, he was looking for a sign in the heavens uh, to give him assurance of a victory over his rival, and a sign did appear. Uh, and it was either the cross, or some sources say it was this, Cairo, which is the first two letters in the name Christ. Uh, yeah, the name Christos. Christ is your sign. And so he made all his men put that on their shields. They conquered 
and also through his mother, who was already Christian, probably slipping things into his ear as good mothers do. He came to the Christian faith and his edict of Milan ended the official persecution of Christians in the world. But uh, up until that moment, there were plenty of martyrs. There's a line from one of the early Christian writers, Tertullian. He said, the blood of martyrs is the seed of Christians. So why did so many people in the early world believe these Christians had something that they didn't? Because they were willing to die for that truth. That they had so much joy on their faces. St. Ignatius of Antioch, he forbids his followers from rescuing him on his way to the Colosseum. He's eaten by lions in the Colosseum in Rome. Uh, people reported that the lions wouldn't even eat him. And he was standing there just waiting, uh, accepting this fate. That, you know, the martyrs are sort of letting the wrath of the world fall upon them so that that wrath can be burnt out and forgiveness can take its place and God's mercy can take its place. Sort of the same logic of the cross. That's the wrath of the world come out upon him. So it's all burnt out and forgiveness can take its place. Virgin martyrs as well, super famous. St. Lucy, St. Agatha, St. Cecilia. Uh, these young women who, even if their families sort of denied the faith, they were, you know, 12, 14, 16, 18, in that age span. Uh, they did something, they held fast, even when everyone around them denied them and rejected them. And people started looking differently at the Christians because of this. If even the lowliest little sheep like these uh, will have such great faith, maybe that's something that I need in my life, something to believe in. So that was the church in persecution. The blood of martyrs indeed was the seed of Christians. Uh, Rome cannot be thought of the same anymore. Very same people that persecuted the church turned out to be its greatest followers, just like St. Paul persecuted the early church, ended up converting and being its greatest follower. Rome is firmly, firmly established. It gets into the patristic church. So again, after the persecutions, the church can kind of come out of the shadows. And what do they find? They, they find that uh, during that time, the prophetic mission of Christ has gone on, preaching has gone on, but sort of it seems like there's divisions in the way we're teaching things and the way we're doing things. And part of that's, again, natural development, splitting out different branches. But they had to come together in ecumenical councils, it's called. Ecumenical meaning kind of belonging to the household. So the whole household gets together, sort of has a house meeting. Again, uh, what do we believe? We got to trace our roots back to make sure that we are one holy Catholic and apostolic, again, as we said. So that's where we get our creeds from. That's where, again, Christianity uh, really kind of gets that reset it needed. Not that they changed anything, but again, coming out of the shadows, coming out of that persecution, they needed to get together, uh, sort of like to have that new Pentecost. And this is, again, part of that cyclical nature of, of the church. There's going to be many councils when the church has to get together uh, to figure it out again, get the whole house together, sort of like you have to do with your kids, Sit everyone down, we're gonna have a house meeting and again, shoot off again on that same mission, that communion, we all have the same mission. Uh, I just included two of the great fathers of the church, one from the Western side, St. Augustine from Africa, even Africa, Europe, Asia, they were all in that early church. John Chrysostom on the Eastern side, I just throw their names out, no time to talk more about them now. Well, maybe we get to the church of Christendom. 
So you notice Christendom sort of looks like the word kingdom. Instead of king, though, it's Christ. So it's it's Christ's rule. What happened is Rome fell. <laughs> uh, barbarians came in and destroyed the ancient world as we know it. And it was sort of left to the church to like save civilization in a way. Uh, one of the first names I mentioned there is Benedict and Scholastica. They were brother and sister. And so they sort of established monasteries. You may have heard of monasteries and religious life. That's a part of the church. Many saints come from religious life. We have religious sisters principal here. Those preserved civilization when everything else was burning and people were forgetting how to read and people were being dispersed out into the countryside. You know, things were being destroyed left and right. It was sort of up to the church for, for a good amount of time to sort of take up the building blocks and, and grow. And in a sense, it had to happen because again, church took over Rome. Rome was pagan. It was, it was too human. It was a tower of Babel waiting to collapse. And so God, yes, he goes to build on nature with his grace, but sometimes he's got to tear down before he builds back up. So definitely a tearing down that happens, but then a building up, you know, shoots out. What does the church do to these new invaders? She doesn't consider them enemies. She actually goes and sends out missionaries to go give them the gospel. So people like Patrick, uh, Clotilda, she's great. She basically was the wife of a pagan king in France brought the gospel to France. So France, the eldest daughter of the church, is Catholic in a large part because of Clotilda, who doesn't get enough credit, I'm sure. That's fine. Boniface to the Germans. He's responsible for the Christmas tree, striking down the Oak of Thor. So when watching Marvel Universe, St. Boniface has conquered Thor and his mighty hammer and replaced it with the tree that is Christ, which is evergreen and ever growing. Cyril Methodius, I'm part Czech, so I care about Slavs as well. But you get the picture, you know, all these people moving into Europe, the church did not see them as enemies, saw them as people. Harvest is ready, right, for the gospel. So sent out her missionaries. As it goes on, uh, we get other things popping up. I, I said a key moment is the call to crusade. So church does go to war to take back Jerusalem as it was. A thing to remember is that it was after a long train of abuses, much longer than the taxation that was going on in America before we declared war. So you think about that. Um, she wanted she wanted peace. Francis and Claire, I mentioned them there with the crusade because even though the Pope sent soldiers there, the saints, what did they do? Francis set out to talk to the Sultan and try to convert him to Christianity. That's how he was gonna solve the crusade problem. He wasn't gonna solve it with fighting. He was gonna solve it by convincing him of the truth. He didn't, he didn't succeed, but the Sultan was so impressed with St. Francis. Uh, I know we usually know St. Francis as like the bird guy and, and the nature guy, but he was also a fiery guy. Like there's so much more to his story. He goes to the Sultan. The Sultan is so impressed that he says that, you know, it's not, not going to become Christian or anything, but I want you to take care of all the Christian sites. I'll give you all of them to be in your protection because of your fierceness, your 
five minutes. Okay, here we go. So to this day, the Franciscans are the ones taking care of the holy sites in uh, in the Holy Land. 800 years. That's how long it's been since Francis visited. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, great thinker. Catherine of Siena, most influential woman, if not person, of the high Middle Ages. She was a counselor to bishops, popes, royalty alike. So everyone looked to her as the spiritual guide of the age, brought the Pope back to Rome. He was residing a little part of France, kind of got out of Rome because there's so much trouble. There's always trouble in Rome. It's a terrible place to live. I lived there four years. And see why he wanted to get out, but said, no, your mission is to be in Rome, to be where Peter was, to be where the church, that seed was planted in, in the earliest time. So probably should close up here more giving maybe resources we can go to. Um, again, a constant resource of this class is really formed.org is, is sort of like our Catholic Netflix. Everyone in our parish has access to it for free. You sign up as a parishioner of North American Martyrs and it has you know so many stories of the saints there. Um, I think St. Barbara She's a saint I didn't really know, uh, an early martyr of the church. And uh, they showed it to like seniors in high school and they loved it. So that's a tough crowd. If, if they can like that, I think that's a story I want to go and, and look at, look into a little more too. But so many saint stories, uh, so, so much tragedy, so much has gone wrong as well. This church is still full of sinners and that's important to state as well. Things have gone terribly wrong. And yet there was one cardinal who uh, Napoleon came to Rome one day and wanted to take over the church. Uh, they had a complicated relationship, Napoleon and the church. So he said, I I've come, I've come to take down the church. And the cardinal responded to Napoleon, well, we've been trying to do that for 1800 years and haven't succeeded. So who's to say that you're going to be able to do that? And the cardinal, the point was, it's another sign again of that chronic vigor. The church refuses to die, even when the people, even on the inside, are so corrupted, are sinners themselves, as everyone will claim to be. Pope Francis says at the end of every speech, please pray for me, a sinner. The church goes on. That chronic vigor, again, is, is a great sign that it is living. There is a spirit in it. It is the church Jesus founded that, although wounded and suffering, just like his body, is the body that will be redeemed is the body that we'll find in heaven someday. So sorry, can I go through more? I hope uh, you dump a lot of history questions into our question box, and we'll try to get to those uh, whenever we got time. But I think we got like three minutes. Any, any like burning questions about the history of the church? Yes, go ahead. Yeah, dismiss me being the uh, the good thief. Uh, it's kind of hard to say he's not because he seems to be the first canonized saint. Jesus said, you will be with me in paradise. That's a pretty good canonization uh, statement. So um, I don't a lot of you got to remember too. the church only celebrates so many saints during the year. A lot of times those are the only saints we know because we hear about them. Uh, every year. That's why we have the Feast of All Saints. 
because there are so many saints. There's actually been more martyrs in the 20th century than in the entire history of the church combined. Uh, again, you got the world wars there. You got many secular, like communist persecutions of the church. So that makes up a lot of them. You got the civil war in Spain, which killed a lot of Catholics. So that's that's an astounding number as well. Just remember, there's so many saints. So many are canonized every year. Uh, I just when I went to my pilgrimage to Rome, I saw Carlo Cudis, who's basically my age. Uh, he's a blessed now. I saw him in Assisi. His body looks like he's alive. Like I've seen lots of people in caskets that are dead, but it's like, you know, you can tell they've passed. He looks like he's sleeping and he's a saint for the technology age. He played PS2. <laughs> That's a relic of his, is his PS2. And he set up a site on the internet about all the Eucharist miracles. So very devoted man as well. So I guess, I think he probably is a canonized saint, but he just doesn't have a feast day, probably in the Western church at least. Okay, I think we got one minute. Yeah, yeah, sure. Oh, that's a hard question. That's a, that's a good question too, gosh. What is it? Yeah, I think they are a lot of times included in the, uh, trying to think. That is a good question. Well done, stumped Father Walmart. I don't know what to tell you. I'm pretty sure they're saints. But again, they don't have feast days. They came before Christ. So it, they're not celebrated the same way, given quite the same honor as those who lived a life in Christ. But I think at least in the Eastern Church, they're, they're called saints. I think even Constantine is a saint in the Eastern Church. So I, I, I don't know. You stumped me. Well done. There's always more to learn, even when you're a priest. So let's go ahead and pray, brothers and sisters. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, Heavenly Father, we look forward to that day where we'll all be gathered in your kingdom with your saints to adore and praise you and learn what true happiness is. And so for now, we pray to give all glory to you to await the glory of your face as we say. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace.